0: Alaikum al Na'mah wa s-salam min in Arab, Abina wa Isa al Masih, Mulana. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Anashkurilahuna da'iman angma adhukurkum fi salati. I always thank our God as I remember you in my prayers. The Baraka Allah, Abu Sayyidina Isa al Masih, li'annahu barakna bikul, barakatin wa ruchiyatin fi asama, Praise be to God, our Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. That was a um, fairly simple uh, scripture reading in Arabic. Uh, it's taken us five to six years even to get to that point, but it, always, it wasn't always like that. Back in September of 2011, um, we had been in the region for a month trying to settle in and we were about to begin our language studies and it's a fairly tough language to to pick up and the first time i was out with an arab friend at a coffee shop i tried ordering in the local language so instead of ordering tea with milk i said uh can i have some tea and i would like to milk a cow <laughs> my name is dan i'm here with my wife dara uh, and our two daughters now most people can't tell where i'm from and so or my background or just by looking at me And it gets harder once they hear me speak because they can't really figure out a place the accent. So we are at Abdullah's house one day and uh, our friend and I were visiting together. He says, hey, Abdullah, can you tell where Dan is from? And uh, he says, I don't know. Um, I don't think he's Chinese. Uh, He looks a little Mexican, uh, but I think he's Lebanese, which is great because obviously I spoke in Arabic to a point that he thought I was fairly um, competent. And then I proceeded to tell him, well, uh, I'm Chinese, Malaysian, with a Portuguese grandmother, born in Malaysia, moved to Canada when I was 18, and six years ago moved here. And his eyes get bigger and bigger and bigger. And then finally he says, you cannot have all three, you must choose one. (laughs) See, now part of the world, how you look and your passport have to be the same, right? So uh, it gets really hard because when we try and cross borders and the guy says, Uh, Where are you from? I said, I'm from, I'm Canadian. He said, no, you're not. I said, I am. No, you're not. I said, I am. And he says, but your skin is not white. (laughs) And I said, have you been to Canada lately? (laughs) Um, Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, We are thrilled that you could join us. I'd also like to welcome all of you joining us via live stream. It is great to have you. We trust and pray that this service will be a blessing to all of you gathered here as well to those watching over live stream. In August of 2011, our family was blessed to be sent as international workers to the Middle East. Today, it is our joy to serve with a team that not only includes international workers from Canada, but also from six other countries and covering up to half a dozen languages. On behalf of my family and our whole region, our whole team in the region, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for all your prayers, your encouragement, your generous and sacrificial giving that supports us and all that we do overseas. We are not able to do over there, if not for your continued faithfulness over here. Please understand this is all about teamwork. Um, So we can't do what we do over there without you. In Mark chapter 6, we read that Jesus sends out 12 disciples, two by two, and he gave them authority over impure spirits. Now he gives them some instructions about the mission and then it says, they drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. You got to understand that this is pretty amazing. Because on their first mission trip, even without Jesus being with them physically, they drove out demons and they healed sick people. Imagine doing this on your first mission trip. How would you feel afterwards? And then the story picks up in verse 30. Picture this in your minds. The apostles, uh, the the disciples are all pumped up. They're all excited because they drove out demons and healed sick people. The first time ever. They're so excited to, to report this to Jesus. And they're probably all talking at the same time. Jesus, this boy was possessed by an evil spirit and we cast it out in your name. Jesus, this woman was on deathbed with a fever so high. But we laid hands on her and the fever left. And she got up and walked and ate and drank afterwards. On and on and on, they report to him one miracle after another. They were so successful that crowds of people were following them and they couldn't even get a chance to eat. And so Jesus says to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Okay, Jesus wants to give his disciples a break because they are tired and they are hungry. And so they went away by themselves, the scripture says, in a boat to a solitary place. Obviously, they're going around a river or going around a lake somewhere. And then many who saw them, it says, leaving, recognized them, and they ran on foot. You've got to go a lot faster, right? Because you're going around. Ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of Jesus and the disciples. Now, these people were very likely from all the towns and villages and the places that the disciples have visited earlier in the day. And so word is spreading. Right? These guys cast out demons. They healed the sick. And now they're going over there with their master. Let's go and see what more we can get. It's the first time we've ever seen anything like this. But when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So He began teaching them... Many things. Right? They went there to rest, and Jesus sees them all gathered there and says, Okay, I got to do something about this. Like the disciples, Jesus probably was tired and hungry, but his compassion moved him to continue ministering to the large crowd. Notice this is, but he had compassion on them. Anyone who has known our family for any length of time will know that compassion comes. Quite naturally to my wife, well, it's a significant challenge for me. Her top three spiritual gifts are giving, helps, and mercy. Like, it's so unfair, right? It's like all in one boat. And then mine are teaching, leadership, and administration. I got shortchanged with the compassion part. And so you can imagine the opportunities that have come up in our 17 years of marriage for differences of opinion to be shared. So while I am constantly focused on completing the task at hand, she is constantly aware of the people around her. I am keenly cognizant of the fact and have been humbled time and again that so much of the doors for our ministry where we are have been opened because of her compassion uh, for people who don't know Jesus. People don't really care what you know until they know that you care. So just two weeks ago, an hour before we had to leave for the airport to catch our flight to Canada, she notices the new local neighbors across the street of our home, and she wanted to go say hi. I reminded her that, honey, we need to leave in an hour. (laughs) To which she says, I sense I need to go and introduce myself. It would only take five minutes. (laughs) After 17 years of awesome marriage, I know that it rarely ever only takes five minutes. (laughs) 15 minutes later, she... (laughs) walks into the house excited to share that she met three generations of women in the home that they had just moved from a neighboring country, that they were missing their family and hadn't yet met any of the neighbors and that they were looking forward to us visiting them after we return from Canada. All that from 15 minutes. You see, the compassion of Jesus moves us to minister to people when we otherwise would not or cannot or don't want to. And sometime later, Jesus' disciples, they come to him, right? And they say, "Uh, Master, this is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Now, can you read between the lines what the disciples are trying to tell Jesus? Just try and read it. They're probably thinking, Finally, the sun's gone. That means everybody's got to go. Because that's what happens in those days. When the sun sets, everybody goes home. Finally, we can get some downtime and eat. We've been surrounded by people all day. We're tired. Jesus, send them away. And so, as I was thinking, that's probably what I would do, and that's probably what many of us here would do after a long day of ministry, after a long day of work, right? This is me time. It's our time. And so they were not expecting what Jesus was going to say next when he said, But he answered, You give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. Now, Jesus refused to give in to logic or sunset, which, by the way, he was part of creating. He refused to give in to that, and he refused to give in to the hunger and exhaustion of his disciples. There were only 12 of them compared to the thousands and thousands gathered in the crowd. And so we're thinking, Okay, Jesus, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? And so the disciples replied in the only way that they could, when they said to him, uh, That would take more than half a year's wages. Jesus, just so you know, Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? We've already spent everything we have today. You expect us to spend all that we have in our lives for this? What are you thinking? Here's the flip side. Didn't they return earlier in the day from preaching the gospel, casting out demons and healing the sick? Remember that? Didn't they witness miracle after miracle after miracle? And here's what I'm learning. Sometimes in the midst of being tired and hungry and spent and exhausted and and just say, I need to get away from people, in the midst of being stretched physically, we lose sight of what God has done, what He is doing, and what He can do. We lose sight of what He has done what he is doing, and what he can do. And sometimes, just in case we think this, this, this is the only instance that happened in the Scriptures, didn't Elijah, by the way, run for his life from Jezebel right after God had manifested himself so powerfully at Mount Carmel? What did he do? He heard Jezebel wanted to kill him and said, I can do this, I'm going to run. Dude, you just saw God rain down fire upon a soaked trench of a sacrifice and kill 400 prophets in God's name of Baal, and he ran because a woman threatened his life. And so when the disciples were faced with a need that they could not possibly meet, they basically said to Jesus, we can't do this. It's too much. We don't have enough resources. It's not our responsibility. Right? They say, send them away to find and get something to eat. Meaning, saying this is not our responsibility. Easter Sunday morning, several years ago, when my wife lost her voice temporarily to laryngitis, and the last place she wanted to be was at the hospital with Fatima, who was scheduled to receive some routine test results. She could barely communicate that morning verbally, and all morning she heard God say to her, Get ready one step at a time, and go. That's all she heard. An hour later, she was beside Fatima at the hospital. The results were anything but routine because they required surgery immediately two days later. And she, Fatima was in tears due to the news. And all my wife could do was to hug her and pray silently for her. And as she sat with Fatima, she also heard God say, I wanted you here this morning. I desire your availability not your ability. See, all the disciples had to do was show up. And today, Fatima is one of our closest friends, local closest friends, and understands that we are committed Christians, that we love our family dearly, and that we pray for them regularly. Now, it's easy to look at the numbers of people in the Middle East, in the Arab world, it's in the hundreds of millions, all around the world even, where three billion people are unreached, or even in Toronto, in your workplaces and schools, by the way, the nations are coming here if you haven't figured that out yet, um, and who need to hear about the compassion of Jesus, and then say, Jesus, we cannot do this, it's too much, we don't have enough resources, it's not our responsibility. Let me ask you this, if it's not ours, then whose is it? Remember what the disciples then said, that would take more then uh, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How much more do you want from us? How much more do you want to take? How much more do you want us to sacrifice? But Jesus doesn't ask them for what they don't have. He doesn't. He goes on to ask them for what they do have. He says, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. (laughs) Meaning, Jesus, you got five loaves and two fish. I told you. Told you so, Jesus. It's not enough. There's barely enough here for 13 of us. Right? 12 disciples, one Jesus. There's barely enough here for all of us, let alone... What you see there, right? So, we're right, you're wrong. But Jesus proceeds to tell his disciples to break the crowd into groups of hundreds and fifties. He takes the five loaves, two fish, looks up to heaven, gives thanks, and breaks the loaves. Jesus takes what he's given and gives thanks to, and gives honor and gives praise to where it is due. He gives the bread and fish to the disciples, distributes to the crowds, and then he says, They all ate and were satisfied. Not only that, there were 12 basketfuls left over. See, the number of men alone that ate was how many? Do you guys remember? 5,000. The scriptures are very clear to tell us, besides women and children. So, in case we forget, if we include women and children, there could have easily been thousands more, if not over 10,000. And when it comes to ministering to people with the compassion of Jesus, Jesus is not asking us to feed them with what we don't have. Some of us think, okay, I got to get ready here. I got to prepare it here. I got to be gifted in this way. I got to have this many resources. I got to have this kind of house. I got to have this kind of... He, He doesn't ask us to go and get all that we don't have. All He's asking is, what do you have? Let's start there. Feed them with what you have. Bring him. Bring me. Go and see and bring it to me. Five loaves, two fish. And some of you are wondering, you know, what the five loaves and two fish look like on the field. Right? As uh, international workers, we, one of the things that we enjoy, apart from our many other responsibilities, is visiting our local friends, particularly uh, when, they become, when, when they welcome a newborn into their family. Now, they have always given us the privilege of praying a blessing over the newborns now, six years later. Right? So we've seen 13, 14, 15, up to 20. Um, you know, and sometimes when we visit their homes, there's children after child after child being passed around our whole family, including our kids. So when we get a call to visit our local friends after the birth of a child, that visit is a priority. Because we recognize that the ministry to people in the region has to go from generation to generation, from birth all the way to death. We're tired of praying for older and elderly in a hospital who die. And the first time we hear about the gospel is um, when they are 70. We think maybe they need to start hearing when they're born or when they're children, you know. The same thing applies here. And here's what we pray. We, we lay hands on a child's head. We pray for God to give him a sound mind to discern the truth. We lay hands over the child's ears and pray that she would grow up to listen for the voice of the one true living God. We touch the baby's chest and we ask for God to never let his heart of flesh turn into stone. We touch her eyes and ask God to open them early in life for her to see the invisible reality of his kingdom, a kingdom of grace. And then we pray that the child's life will be marked by dreams and visions of the living God who desires to see them free if they would only follow him. By the way, you don't have to go thousands of miles to pray prayers like that. And if you're wondering where we learn, we learn right here during concerts of prayers and the preaching that came from this pulpit. And it's in the scriptures. And some of you might wonder, Damien, but how effective is this? They're just babies. In the face of tens of millions of people in our region that that need the compassion of Jesus, that's just five loaves Into fish. How many years, how many decades, how many centuries would this have to go on? What difference does it make? And I'm always reminded by uh, the story of Moses. You guys remember Moses? See, Moses was born at a time when Pharaoh had an edict that all Hebrew children under the age of two were to be killed. And so when Moses was born, his mom and dad tried to hide him as long as possible. Uh, We just welcomed a new cousin into our family and uh, trying to keep a baby silent for three months is like almost impossible, right? And so they tried and tried and then it came for the time when Moses' mother had to give him up and so she built a basket of uh, pitch and tar and put him in there and set him down the river. Now, okay, and who finds the baby? Right, Um, Moses' uh, Pharaoh's daughter finds the baby, right? The princess. And she says, this must be one of the Hebrew children and Miriam Coincidentally or not comes along and says would you like me to go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse this child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter says yes, please go who does Miriam get? She gets Moses mother and I think this is brilliant like so amazing You know because those of us who have children we know how much money we spend on raising our kids and here Moses mother gets paid to raise a child for three four five years because she says that they say that they wean her until he, she raised him until he was weaned. And we know it's anywhere from three to five years because in the Middle East, without any refrigeration, without any, anything cold, uh, you know, in order to be safe and, and, and to raise your child safely beyond the first two years that are treacherous, you, you, you feed them for the first few years. And so Moses' mother had him for those first few years. What do you think she would have done with Moses before she sent him to Pharaoh's court? Think about this. She would have prayed prayers beyond anything imaginable. She would say, God, can you protect his mind from anything that the Egyptians might put in there? God, can you protect his eyes from all the lust that they would present before him? God, can you protect his heart from becoming hard heart, from, from all the idolatry that is present there? God, can you make sure that you keep his body safe? Because, and she would have told him all the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and where he came from, so that he would never forget. I said, God, please, Planted his identity so deep into his soul that he won't ever forget that he is a child of Israel. And then it says, we read in Hebrews, Moses chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures, the fleeting pleasures of sin for a while. Nothing that Egypt had to offer all 35 years could not undo the first 3 to 5 years of Moses' time with his mother. And then I say, we don't need all the kids that we pray for and all the people in that land. We don't need all of them to turn out like Moses. We just need one. I need one Moses. Or we need one of them to be a Joseph. Or we need one of them to be a Daniel. Or we need one of them to be an Esther. We don't need all of them. And one of them can save a nation. God can use one of them to save a nation. And to all you young parents, you who diligently care for your newborns those first few years of their lives, never, never, ever underestimate the spiritual, emotional, and psychological impact you can have on your child in their early years by laying hands on them, praying for them, and blessing them. And by the way, it's also never too late. Our family, um, we are also increasingly aware that it's not just nations overseas that are hungry for the compassion of Jesus, right? The nations here, there are nations here gathering in Toronto. There are hundreds and thousands who are looking for spiritual food right in the schools that you attend, in the places that you work, in the neighborhoods that you live in. You don't have to fly across continents to pray for the families in your neighborhoods and in the workplaces. You don't have to fly 11,000 Kilometers to lay hands on a child and pray God's blessing on them. You can do that to any child you see here. Please ask the parent first. (laughs) Open your home to an exchange student or to a refugee family over Christmas or Easter or Thanksgiving. These are some of the loneliest times for newcomers in Canada. Do you know that? When all homes shut down and everybody does their own thing and lonely family and and these families come to Canada and go, okay, what do we do? We have none of these traditions. And then they set up their own traditions over Ramadan and over fasting and they'll build their mosques. It is so encouraging that you here support and commission the Chigin team's ministry every year. Uh, We were at Pastor Cheryl's house for a small group gathering this past Thursday and then she mentioned that at one point the people had said to the team, you smell like God. They brought the aroma of Christ with them. It's what they're trying to say. Couldn't find words for it, right? But in their own native indigenous way of saying it, they say, you smell like God. Is that what Corinthians says? First Corinthians? To those who are alive, we bring the aroma of Christ. For those of us who feel that showing the compassion of Jesus to the nations around us would require more time and energy and resources than what we can afford, Jesus might be saying to us, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. Now, so far, I've been addressing only the followers of Jesus who are faced with the crowds. And I realize that some of you here or watching over live stream might not be followers of Jesus. And that's fair. You're part of the crowd. Maybe you're hungry for some answers in life. You've tried all other religions. You're giving Jesus a last chance. I've tried everything. Jesus is my last chance. And Some of you have heard about Jesus, of how he changed the life of someone you know. But you want to see for yourself, okay, I want to know if you can do it for me too. You don't bring with you any belief or any faith. All you've brought is a little bit of curiosity. You're just wondering. And you're thinking, I don't have what it takes to follow Jesus. I don't have the faith. I don't have the belief. I'm just curious. And so let me encourage you with this. Perhaps Jesus is saying to you as well, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. Jesus can take any challenge, I think. Bring me whatever curiosity, bring me whatever doubt you have, and see if I can multiply it into faith to feed not only you, but your families and your friends and have leftovers beyond your wildest imagination. You know what blew my mind? The fact that Jesus fed the whole crowds. Not just a little bit, not just to stave off the hunger, they all ate and were satisfied. Do you guys all understand what it means to eat and be satisfied? You know that, right? i.e. you don't feel hunger anymore afterwards. But not only that, just to prove his point, Jesus says, I am not a God of scarcity. I am a God of abundance. And you will have leftovers. And they did. In April of 2014, in our region, a man named Mahmoud, he's a man in his 60s, he's been asking his questions his whole life about truth and meaning, and he was finding no answers in his religion. So, one evening he feels tired and, and he pulls over in the car. He takes a nap. All he has is unbelief and dissatisfaction and disillusionment, but he's got nowhere to turn. So he's taking a nap. His whole life is felt this way. And then there's a flashing light that goes from the right of his, to the left. And a voice that tells him, go into that building across the street and people in there will tell you about Jesus all he hears. By the way, up to this point, never heard the name of Jesus. There are people, by the way, all over the world, who have never heard the name of Jesus, in case you're thinking that it's really common. And so what does the voice tell him? Says he, he does what the voice tells him. He walks into the building. And it happens to be an international church where a group of Christians are gathering that week for prayer. It's midweek service. And these same Christians have been be, being disciples for a while, and they've been praying, saying, God, can you bring us somebody? We have no faith and our want to go and find people or talk to people. God, you know what? How about you bring us someone? So that we can tell them about Jesus. And as they are praying, this man, who by the way, is not, you know that little rhyme, one of you does not look like the other? One of you doesn't fit? Okay. So, there's a group of Filipino workers praying, and an Arab man walks in. So obviously, it doesn't fit, right? And so the, he says, So some of them go up to him and say, What can we do to help you? He says, A voice told me to come in here and you would tell me about Jesus. And so the pastor comes along, tells him about Jesus, um, and he accepts Christ. Um, and he says, You know, we, by the way, this is a secondhand story. We sat with him and heard his story in a discipleship group. And he says, um, I have been looking for Jesus my whole life. I just didn't know what name. And he's the one. In fact, he has encountered significant difficulty ever since he started following the life and teachings of Jesus. And then he said this, I spent my whole life looking for him. I will never let him go. Regardless of what. He said, I will die. And that's fine. I will die a man that has found what he was looking for. Now, whether you are a follower of Jesus... And don't think you have what it takes to show God's compassion to those around you or someone who's come out of curiosity but with no faith whatsoever or belief or even any expectation that Jesus is real. I want you to hear the words of Jesus this morning. How many loaves do you have? Go and see. I learned the power of benediction actually right in this church. 20 years ago when I first stepped in. <clears throat> and I remember when Sundar said, um, it's a combination of two words, bene meaning good and diction meaning word, a good word. We live in a world that doesn't give a lot of good words. And I think as God's people gathering on a Sunday morning, it is good to receive good words. And uh, there are some of us here who find it hard, really hard to believe that Jesus desires to turn five loaves and two fish into so much more for those around you and for yourself, and have enough left over. We, because we've been tossed around by life, and because we've been pushed around, and because we have been had bad words said into our souls, we somehow don't believe that our God is a God of abundance. We actually think He's a God of scarcity, that He takes, or that when He gives, He gives unwillingly, or He doesn't give. Uh, with a full heart. And so, God's word, God's blessing for you this morning is to believe in a God of abundance. To trust that when we go out, we can go out with anticipation that when He blesses us, not just for our good, but for the nations around us. And He doesn't leave us scarce, but He leaves us feeling full with basketfuls left over and everyone going home full and satisfied. And then may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all as you go out to love and serve the Lord and Lord of hosts. Amen.